tonight on Arena. Author of the hour is Michael Cunningham on his new novel, Day. And Ireland, Scotland and Wales come together in a new Fishamble play called House. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Fishamble, the new play company, has teamed up with Theatre Galore in Scotland and Theatre Barakaus in Wales to create a new trilingual show called Tai Ti Chach. Houses are changing hands in each of the three scenarios in, in the play, raising questions about the idea of home, language and identity at a time when Airbnb is ruling the roost. Tai Ti Chach is written in Scots Gaelic, Welsh and Osgaelige by Maddie uh, Morrison, Mared Llewellyn Willems and Eva O'Connor. It's directed by a Scottish part of the triumvirate there we're in Kelly. The cast of nine are drawn from all three countries and they are of course turning to all three uh, countries as well they have just played the Isle of Lewis and they are open in Kerry this Friday at under the Dromada on the uh, Ivera Peninsula and I presume they will be travelling to yes they have done Scotland, they will be doing um, Wales somewhere along the line as well. Delighted the two of the writers uh, Eva O'Connor and Marthy Morrison join me now I come to you first of all Eva. What a, what a collaboration this is at the time of the Six Nations Rugby Championship that the countries of Ireland, England, of Ireland Scotland and Wales should come together to give us this kind of tripart play, tripartite play if you like or tri, three parts it's in uh, Explain to us how the, the, the project came about Eva. Um, yeah, it's it's very much a joining of three very brilliant nations, I think. Um, Maureen Kelly, who you mentioned, is directing it. So she's actually Irish and she came up with the idea years ago. She was um, over in Scotland. She speaks Scots Gaelic and she was running a Scots Gaelic theatre company. And it was her brainchild, basically, like to bring, I suppose, three writers together from these three different countries to look at what it kind of means for like minority languages and traditions and cultures to kind of be edged out, I suppose, by like the culture of second homes and the rising cost of living and all these things that are kind of changing these kind of beautiful remote areas that kind of hold the key to all our cultures. So yeah, she came up with this kind of brilliant and slightly bizarre idea for a trilingual play. And and now after years of development, really, it's all come together. And your section of the play, Eva, is Osgoelige. Yeah. Give us an PC in Bioga Osgoelige and then a Rash Latha Merla, a Reg Latha Merla. Well, I suppose it's is um is piece of free me hookrock dogs and gar came to hookrocks because it's my taller del norda I guess I suppose Dini and Dolorimica I guess Chakrash I guess comes every and Ruddy I guess it's Imaha so yeah it's I suppose that's a broad description but essentially it's kind of about what changes what stays the same um for example in one of my pieces it's a it's a brother and a sister a Drehar and Drefur on the morning of of the girl's wedding and she's marrying a rich American and she's actually bought a second home in the counter so she's yeah. Yeah. Kind of coming home for her wedding, marrying and and kind of I suppose to get the photos in the church, and she's chatting about how much she misses the language, and her brother has stayed at home all these years, 
and he's kind of saying, well, you've got rose-tinted glasses on, like you'd have a different yeah. view if you were living here all the time. And I suppose it's all about the kind of tannis, like the tension between, yeah. I suppose, all these factors that nothing is simple, they say nothing is clear cut, and things are always going to change all the time, but we also have to kind of protect our language and protect our our, our culture where we can. I, it struck me across all three players, I bring Marty in at this point, um, it's, it's not the same story, Marthy, in terms of the Isle of Lewis, where your play is set. Uh, which you are, are you living there right now, or did you grow up there and you know moved away to the city? Or what is your situation, Marthy? Well, my situation is I've just literally arrived in Waterville in Kerry, which is lovely. <laughs> um, I'm from the Isle of Lewis, um, and I was born, brought up there. Um, my first language is Gaelic. But I do live in the city of Glasgow. So um, that's where my characters are set in that city of Glasgow. Um, And uh, I understand that whole thing of what it feels like to feel part, um, to be living in a place, Mm. but considering another place as home, um, which is very, it's a very commonplace um, attitude for many people who have left the island that they all consider the island home, although they might have spent most of their lives away from the place. And the other um, common thing, I think, across all three stories is the sense of the one who went away and who comes back and knows everything about what people should be doing on the <laughs> island, not having been, not having lived there a bit of, when, when Eva was talking about the rose-tinted spectacles uh, of the sister earlier on, you have two sisters yeah. in, in your story, Marthy, and one of them certainly seems to think she knows everything about everything that should be happening on the, on the island. And it's perhaps understandable that there's a little bit of resentment from her younger sister who stayed on the island. Yes, absolutely. Um, they they both actually left the island, but mm. but one has has kept more of the, the ties yeah. with the community and the relationship, and and it's that sense of ownership. Um, and you know, I have to say, when I was writing this play, at one point it did come back to me that somebody was saying, "Well, Mavi doesn't actually live here anymore," which actually made me feel it, it, it kind of made me stand back a bit and. and it, as, as I drew the dagger out of my heart, I was like, that's where my heart is. And I yeah. know this place so well. Um, and I'm constantly back and forth. So it, it's interesting how people view who, who has the right of ownership and who has the right of buying places. And is it is it okay for a local to be buying up a, a property that should be, you know, given to somebody else? You know, there's, there's so many questions and we, we all... We're all facing the same mm. challenges and the same issues in all these rural communities. Yeah, it is. Um, it is certainly notable that that it it works in that fashion across the three stories. Uh, the Welsh story has a similar kind of feel to it in terms of uh, yeah. discussions over discussions over a house as well. Um, the Kerry setting for you, Eva. How important was that? We can we we've heard from Marthy why the why the Isle of Lewis setting was so important to her. Why the Kerry setting for you? Um, well, lots of my family are from South Kerry, and so I spent a lot of my time, I suppose, as a youngster growing up there, and mm. um, like down around Cara Daniel and and South Kerry in general. And I suppose always knowing that the Gwaelg is there, not like Bailin Skellig and stuff, but that it's not always, you, you, you know, in my say in my cousin's house, we wouldn't have always have heard that as the first language, and just kind of, I suppose 
as uh, as you kind of look more into it and you look into kind of I suppose the dynamics of the Irish language I was just kind of drawn to I suppose setting it there and and looking at how much Irish Irish language actually holds the key to our culture as well and how kind of precious that is and how maybe you don't really realise that as a younger person And I don't know what the situation I wish I had a Scots Gaelic that I could use uh, with you Marty so Tobrono um, Nach Will you know but maybe if I kind of have Oh Yeah if I put on a kind of a Gaelic a, 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 a Right. I wonder <laughs> to what extent extent there is a kind of a a revival in and around the Irish language, I think it's safe to say, particularly because of the Gwale Skull movement here in Ireland. There's there's a, a, a renewed interest and a, a different attitude to the language than certainly there was when I was growing up in a Galtuk area um, as a child. It's diff- it's It has changed here. What is the situation in Scotland in that regard? Um, well, it certainly has changed in Scotland as well. Um, what we're finding now is that the areas that you would call the Gaeltoch, um mm. and the areas where Gaelic would have been spoken um, on a daily basis, it's now it's changing, and the city of Glasgow is now about to open its first Gaelic school, which is pretty amazing. Um, but the so the people that are now learning the language are not necessarily people that have anything to do with mm. the Gaelic culture. You know, it, so it is very different. Um, and in some ways, something that would make my granny turn in her grave. Some people are are saying that it's quite a um, it, it, it's a language for people. Uh, I can't really get. I've been up since four this morning. Sorry, I can't get my. <laughs> but it's more of a, a language for for people with money rather than 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 a language of of a daily basis kind of thing. It's more like a public school kind of thing. Yeah, there's an as, there's an aspirational which, aspect to it in some ways. There is, yes, uh-huh, which um which I find hard to come to terms with. Mm. Um, but it is it's 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 very much changed. And like yourself, I wouldn't have like growing up. It, you know, it wasn't cool to be speaking Gaelic um, at all. Whereas now it is, it's very much cool. Um, yeah, and, and that is the situation. And, and, and you see that. Yeah, that is Sorry. the situation yeah. here, Eva, I suppose, when you think of the number of rappers and uh, even, you know, uh, hip-hop <laughs> music that we have us it is oh, yeah. a totally different situation now. Mm. Yeah, and even like, you know, I, I learned my Irish in school, but the reason I now kind of have followed it is because I just fell in with an Irish group of friends. Do you know what I mean? Who speak Irish? I mean, Irish-speaking yeah. group of friends. And, and that is very much part of, I suppose, uh, 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 what what feels to me like a very exciting and kind of hopeful movement to be part of. Yeah. And if you think of on Colleen Kuhn with the with the Oscar nomination, uh, it was a great film. It happened to be Osgoelige, but it was a story that could have been told in Merla, but it was told Osgoelige. Mm-hmm. And similarly, if you think of Kneecap, the Belfast group. Yeah, and the film coming out. The yeah, film coming out. Yet, and the big, <laughs> the big success that it had uh, recently as well. Um, coming back then to the, the presence, Amarthi, uh, and again, this works across all three sections in some way, or all three plays, it, it strikes me in some ways. The presence of music, it's always there in the background. I know it's used as a kind of a device for linking us from one place to another as well within the script. But it struck me that 
uh, and particularly in your story with the with the young lad Callum, who is very interested in his his uncle. We we meet your characters on the day of a funeral. An old uncle has died, mm. but music and storytelling is at the heart of this community. Absolutely, and although Callum has been brought up in Glasgow, mm. this is very much a Glasgow Gale. Um, and you see that very often people are always going home on holiday to the islands, but they're very much immersed in in that storytelling and the music. Um, and the music scene has really taken off, uh, the Gaelic traditional music scene has really taken off in the last 10 years. Um, so it's it's lovely that Callum's character is, is not only um, immersed in his own modern day world, but mm. he's also immersed in listening to the old stories and old cassette tapes um, from the past. Yeah, from what would be um, his granduncle, as it were. So his granduncle, mm. yes, that's right. Um, and very much sort of a, a little crofter boy, I suppose, <laughs> but um, living in the city, but has aspirations that he probably didn't realise himself, that he, he yes. thought he, he could actually make a living out of being in the island. And it's important, I think it's important too for me to point out in case I haven't made it clear that it is the three languages that we will hear across the three players. We will hear Irish, we will hear uh, Welsh and we will hear Scots Gaelic uh, and there will be subtitles obviously for, for the various languages and so you'll be able to follow it in whatever way uh, you, you wish to do it. Uh, logistically, <laughs> I would have thought, Marthy, this was this is quite a task um, even just to have the, the three casts from the three different countries and then to bring them all together and to tour each of the three countries. It's a big undertaking logistically. It's absolutely mad. Yes, <laughs> it is. And you, I think is what we would say. Yeah. I think Eva was hinting at that. It is. It, it's, a, it's bonkers, but, and it's, but it's unique. Um, and it's also because it's site-specific um, and very, very small audiences. It's very intimate and um, it's an unusual experience for, for yeah. certainly people in the islands um, that kind of theatre experience that they, they wouldn't normally get um, yeah it's 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 been quite it's been quite interesting to have now done it in, it'll be interesting to see how all the plays are received in yeah. Ireland yes and, and in Wales obviously now that we've seen them in we've had a run at it in Lewis um, but yeah it's been great it's been a bit of a mix you know there's, yeah. there was one matinee where people were kind of like sitting through it and chatting as if they were at the cinema um, so yep, who knows what we'll get? Who knows what? That's who's knows? <laughs> and it did it did strike me that it was interesting, Eva, and you have picked up on this in your story, and it's there in uh, Marthy's story, and indeed in Marie Llewellyn Williams' story, as I said as well. Housing is a huge issue across all three countries. Yeah, it's so contentious as well, and there's no right answer. Like mm. what Marty was saying about like. Is it okay for locals to be buying up houses as second homes if they have the money? Or like, do we give preference to people who have the language? Yeah. When you have to protect the language, then, it comes, then the housing crisis comes into it. So like, I remember the first day when we were starting the development all together in Glasgow and we all sat down together and there was, you know, about like 30 people from the three countries. And we just had such a huge, interesting conversation because there's so much common ground between all these yeah. three countries and every, all the problems that we face. And kind of, I suppose, no, clear answers. I suppose what the play yeah. does is, is just ask questions. By the way, uh, uh, Marthy, I don't know if you're a rugby fan or not. Are any of the Welsh uh, members of the companies speaking to you after after your defeat? <laughs> after your defeating <laughs> Wales by one point over the weekend? Um, 
I, uh, that's why we're probably living in separate houses while we're here in Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm guessing, I mean, you'll be touring throughout the Six Nations period. There's going to, there's going to be a lot of noses out of joint uh, along the way, for sure. But um, obviously, you're all going to have trouble when you come to meet us. We all know that. So let, let us leave that bit to the one side for the time. Well, listen, Gunamila Bahagat Birch, Asfa, Alinga Nocht, August Gunari and Thal, the very best of luck with the tour and thanks uh, so much to both of you uh, for being with us this evening. Made a break. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thai Ti Chak is the title of the play. It's at Unad Nadromada in the Ivra Peninsula in Kerry from the 9th through until the 4th of February and you can find out full details on fishamble.com. The author of The Hours and A Home at the End of the World, Michael Cunningham, has just published Day, his first novel since 2014's The Snow Queen. Revolving around an extended family living in Brooklyn, Day unfolds on the morning, afternoon and evening of April the 5th, 2019, 2020 and 2021, respectively. Michael, of course, is probably best known for The Hours, New York. Times bestseller, winner of the Penn Faulkner Award and Pulitzer Prize. Many of you will have seen the film adaptation, which was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars in 2003. Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman and Julianne Moore. Delighted that Michael Cunningham joins me now from New York to talk about Day, his eighth novel. And this was a novel, I think, not the novel that you intended to give us, Back in 2019, right. Michael, something happened, I think, that stopped yeah. you. Well, <laughs> the pandemic happened. Um, <laughs> I was pretty well into another novel when no one, you know, neither I nor anyone had remotely imagined the pandemic. And then suddenly there was the pandemic. I felt like you couldn't. Po- I couldn't possibly set a novel in contemporary world and act as if there wasn't a pandemic. How could you do that? Mm. Um, And it wasn't going to fit into the novel I was working on. That would have been, if I tried to put it into that novel, it would have felt put into that novel. It would have been like, oh, here we are at this slightly awkward point. Oh, here's Godzilla, who was expecting (laughs) a 50-foot tall fire-breathing lizard. So I put that novel aside and started this one. Yeah, and am I right in thinking that the words COVID and pandemic are pretty much absent from Day, despite the fact that it those two aspects are kind of ever-present in the story? Yes, you are right. I figure people will know um who who could who in the world wouldn't know and it, it's just I feel like any terrible, terrifying thing is a little more terrifying and terrible if it is unnamed. The way the ancient Greeks never said aloud the name of the god of the underworld um, for fear they'd be overheard. Oh, wow, I I forgot about you. Come on down. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, 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 I, I, I... I, I don't mean to be at all coy, of course, about what's actually happening, but I don't actually call it 
the pandemic or COVID. Yeah, which I think is a very interesting choice because as you say, in, often as in film, the unseen is the most frightening thing. Perhaps in literature, the unstated is is equally right. the most frightening right. thing in, in, in some ways. Yes. We, we are with a family. It's quite a kind of gather, a gathering of a family here. It has that extended uh, messy family feel to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it 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 is it is a slightly messy family, though. You know, as as I as I talk about it, um, and sometimes someone will mention, well, you know, it's not a traditional family. I feel like, well, I'm not so sure anymore <laughs> when you when you look at what we mean by family, which includes a single woman raising her raising. You know, the the the, mm. the variations are endless um so it is a messy i guess i would have to say semi-traditional family for the year 2024 yeah we have it we have a husband and wife they have two kids the the wife's brother a gay man is living upstairs in the attic because that's that's where he needs to be and the husband's Mm. brother isn't too far away either he's a bit more feckless perhaps than than the the other brother-in-law but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of dynamic going on here Uh, how would you describe as we find them in 2019 the dynamic between isabel and dan the married couple uh, Isabel and Dan have been married for 10 years, and um, it is not going all that well. Um, I I am slightly perversely interested in, in marriages that are neither so terrible that the only solution is to get out of there immediately, and marriages that are essentially happy I, there is uh, it's it's difficult to dramatize these families but i just feel like they uh, like the the okay marriage is underrepresented in literature yeah cuz as you say the marriage may not be going all that well it's not going all that badly either but yeah. <laughs> there's kind of yeah yeah it's a bit like who, the, who among us doesn't know marriages like that? Very few among us, I would say, don't know marriages like that. However, there is a triangular aspect to all of this relationship, and it's sure. beautifully teased out in the way you kind of half nudge and suggest it, and the language that happens between Dan, the husband, and Robbie, the gay brother of Isabel. That was that's a very interesting. It is stated, but never stated when anybody else is around. The way they speak to each other is incredible. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yes. Robbie is the sort of glue that is holding Isabel and Dan together for, you know, for better and for worse. Mm. And um, Robbie is for both Isabel and Dan, a sort of ideal husband. Um <laughs> Though, of course, nothing sexual happens between them. Isabel is his sister. Dan is his sister's husband. And I also, um, I very much wanted Dan, the husband, to be straight. Uh, I, I, I feel like we've we've seen the story of the outwardly straight guy who's actually secretly gay. And I'm I'm just more interested in various kinds of romances that are not sexual, that are not leading to marriage, um, 
But our real romances, I, th- mm. I, I can only speak for myself, but I think any number of us are in love with people we we have no intention of sleeping with or marrying, but it's real love. It's a romance. And, and the, part of the complication within all of that is that Isabel equally loves her brother absolutely and totally, you know, in a different way. But as, as it, she loves her husband, she also loves her brother. And that, that triangle is a very... And Robbie, the, the gay mm-hmm, man, mm-hmm. loves the two of them. It, it's the kind of the most untraditional love triangle that, I, that I've come across in a long time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> in that regard, it is, in, it is in fact, untraditional. Um, but, but I think certainly, certainly mm. incredible. Um, and, and although you don't say things like this directly in a novel, um, the three of them are also kind of stuck in this. You know, it's, it's Robbie is holding together a marriage that maybe shouldn't go on. Um, Isabel and Dan offer Robbie enough sort of affection and domestic contentment that it sort of stops him from having a life of his own with a boyfriend of his own. It's complicated. Yeah, and there's lots of, it's kind of like a holding pattern. It's a way of everybody holding where they are. But within, uh, within all of that holding pattern, of course, they're busy thinking, what might happen if I eventually got to take off or land, as it were? Um, mm-hmm. They have these kind of, the lives that they, they feel they could have, should have uh, lived in, in many ways, which can sound and can be a, a navel-gazing type of exercise. And I guess the challenge for you was to present these other lives in a way that, that wasn't navel-gazing. Yes, yeah. One 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 tries to keep nasal navel gazing to an absolute <laughs> minimum. Um, one tries to produce actual conflict as a, as opposed to merely inner conflict. One right one is one writes about situations that are difficult to resolve. Mm. If they were easy to resolve, there would be no novel. Yeah, yeah it, be a, it mightn't even be a short story. <laughs> it <would> be... <laughs> if that, a short story that, I, that no one would want to read. Yeah, possibly so. One of the things that I love that Robbie and Isabel do, um, they, it's kind of a joint effort, but in some ways it strikes me that it's as much Robbie's online persona as it is Isabel and, and Robbie's online persona. A character called Wolf, who would have thought yeah. that Michael Cunningham would give somebody uh, an online persona called Wolf? Not spelt with two O's, by the way. Spelt with an E no, at the end. Spelt, no, trying but, to be a little bit discreet. Yeah, but a little bit of a nod, I'm sure, in that direction towards yeah, Virginia okay. Wolf, who you've always acknowledged as a as a very important part of your your literary life. I he he creates this. They create this wonderful. Perfect paediatrician. He's a gay, gay man, uh, but he's perfect. He's kind. He's gentle. He's he loves his patients. His patients love him. All of this type of thing, uh, all of that is is absolutely perfect. To what extent is the creation of an online persona by Isabel and and Robbie similar to the creation of a character by Michael Cunningham? It's it's actually fairly similar. Um, I I love Instagram. I'm fairly indifferent to all the others, but the idea that you can just sort of look into the lives of countless people everywhere on the planet is fantastic to me. And and of course, 
what you're seeing is is the versions of themselves people want to present on inter on on Instagram. But I find that if I follow people for long enough, I can begin to sort of suss out the story under underneath the presentation. Um, and yeah, what Robbie has done, he he invented Wolf initially, and then and then Isabel mm. sort of climbed aboard. And what Robbie has done in creating Wolf by by borrowing images from other people um, is a sort of Robbie's idea of the slight, the better version of himself, the one who went to medical school, the one who is just a little easier socially than Robbie, a little better looking. He's not some kind of paragon. Hmm. He's just Robbie's sort of invisible friend who is Robbie, but tweaked with the, yeah. with the lights a little brighter and the volume a little higher. <laughs> and which makes me wonder, you know, when you create characters then, and since we're talking about Dave, we'll talk about, we'll, we'll, we'll concentrate on those characters. Is there some part of each one of them that is the part, the better part of Michael Cunningham, the perfect Michael Cunningham as Michael Cunningham sees him. (laughs) And I guess the slightly dodgy Michael Cunningham is probably in here somewhere as well. But is is there an aspect of that in the creation of a character that you can say, God, I wish I was like him or her? F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, writers must not love their characters too much and must not hate them at all. Which I think it sums it up really well. If I uh, if I didn't get if I couldn't get to the point where any character feels sort of autobiographical, I don't think I could write mm. about the, that person. But um, I, I don't really work directly autobiographically. None of these none of these yeah. people are exactly me. All of them are some facet of me. I think that's true for a lot of us who. Yes, make up people and tell stories about them. It, there, there is another aspect of it. <laughs> this the cheap shot here now, um, because uh, we have this is we have that COVID period, even though it's not specifically called that, um, yeah. and we have how people kind of find ways of of the of. of getting themselves through it. Um, Nathan, who is one of the children of Isabel and Dan, he spends the time watching the movie Rock School over and over again. Isabel Isabel loses herself in Brahms's Requiem. Nice place to get lost, I would have thought. And uh, Robbie decides to read uh, The Mill on the Floss. Um, Michael Collingham, I put it to you that you may have done at least two, if not all three of those things during this the, the pandemic period. Am I right? <laughs> Not so much School of Rock, though. Ah. It's, though it's a, it's a great movie, but you know, <laughs> in his ten or eleven. Um, but yeah, the Brahms Requiem and and Middle March. Yes, yes. If if I if I don't, if my characters are not sort of idealized versions of me, if they have. Interests. I all. I always give them interests mm. that are interesting to me. Michael, lovely to speak with you this evening. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Michael Cunningham. There and Michael's new novel Day is published by Fourth Estate.
The 6th of March, the RTE Concert Orchestra will be playing an evening of romantic classics at the National Concert Hall in Dublin. This will include some very well-known songs heard everywhere from cinemas to concert halls. Among the uh, repertoire on the night will be Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto, famous from Brief Encounter, of course, as well as Elgar's Enigma Variations and Rossini's William Tell Overture. The concert will see Kazakh pianist Alim Basambayev making his Irish debut, as well as being laden down with awards from the Leeds International Piano Competition to be named as the BBC New Generation Artist. He also received rave reviews at the BBC proms last year when he stepped in at the last minute to cover for Benjamin Grosvenor, who had taken ill. And delighted to be joined by Alim on the phone this evening. I cannot imagine, Alim, the moment at which... You got a phone call saying, any chance that you have Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto on your fingers and could you play it at the proms in a few nights' time and could you play it in front of a live television audience? <laughs> what what, what went through your head during that phone call? Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, uh, that, that moment will stay with me for a very long time. Um, well, it, it was a... Friday morning and Sunday was the concert so they 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 called me and I was having my breakfast and they they said is do you play rack 2 well this was my agent says yeah do you, can you do rack 2 I said yes I said, and then he said in 2 days <laughs> and then I said yes and then he said the proms <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to take a deep breath and say Yes. <laughs> so, and then later, he also said it's going to be televised, and um, and too late to say no now. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it was an incredible moment, and I had to quickly get, go through it um, and yeah. run it through. But I presume, I presumed, Alim, you 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 sat down, you calmly finished your breakfast. And you said, I might start to do a bit of, do a bit of practice a little bit later today. <laughs> or did you fling, <laughs> fling the coffee down the well, sink and go straight to the piano? Well, I wish that was the case. Uh, I wish I was that calm about it. But um, I, I had to rehearse two hours later with right. the orchestra. With the orchestra? So, wow. Yes, ex- exactly. So I had to just um, quickly get myself ready and, and go through the piece as, as quick as possible as well to, to just see if I still remember it because I thought... Um, had it been had it yeah. been a while since you had played it in in the public arena? So it had been exactly nine months. So I I was um, the last time I'd played it beforehand was in Kazakhstan, where I come from, hmm. and um, and thankfully I'd known the piece for a long time. It's 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 a gorgeous piece, and I first played it when I was eighteen. Um, so I, it was under my fingers and. And I'm very grateful that it was. Yeah, and and, and a piece like that, because uh, there's a lot going on across the three movements of the work. When you have played it for a long period of time, even though it was nine months since you had last played it, is the muscle memory such that it comes back quite quickly? Or would you go to the, you, you know, the little sections, you don't want a better iron out bars 57 to 95, they always cause me trouble. How do you go about that kind of reawakening the fingers? Well, there are moments in most pieces like that. Great, mm. most great pieces. There are moments that are extremely tricky, and mm. this whole concerto is it is one of the most difficult ones. So, uh, I would be lying to say that if, that it was all very comfortable under my fingers. No, there were moments I had to really 
practice quite a lot through for the next two days. Yeah. Um, but I think what was what's challenging is musically to keep it fresh as well because um, it's such a well-known work and sometimes pe- people, I certainly have heard heard it so many times and and it can be difficult to keep that freshness. But it's very important yeah. to. See it as if from new angles. Well, I'm going to. I, w- I want to play a little bit of your performance uh, at the proms at the BBC proms uh, of 2023 with John Wilson conducting the Sinfonia of London. And this this is a moment n- not quite where you have a rest, but at least you can sit back and wallow in the little conversation between the flute and the clarinet as the second as the second movement opens. But it's not too long before you you have to come in and join in that conversation or at least respond to it as the pianist. Let's listen to it. So this is a live performance two days after you heard you had to play it. Uh, and this is in, obviously, at the, at, at the BBC proms. Let's have a listen. The, the opening section of the second movement of Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto that from the BBC Proms of 2023 John Wilson conducting the Sinfonia of London and the pianist as you heard beforehand who came in at very short notice to play there was Alan Besenbeyev who's with me on the on the line this evening ahead of his performance of that particular concerto on the 6th of March with the RTE Concert Orchestra and I chose that second movement for, for many reasons one, one of them being that it's just the most beautiful heartstring pulling piece of music uh, that, it, that, it, that is out there Alim but also I, I, I'm struck because there's lots of fireworks obviously in the first and, and third movements big chords with you know lots of stuff happening but I wondered how challenging the delicacy of that second movement is for the pianist because it sounds incredibly simple and I, I think sometimes when things sound simple they are far from that Yes, exactly. It's it is very difficult. Uh, you have to find the right rapport with with the conductor first. First thing I think you find the feeling that you're going for, and the temp, you establish the tempi and the, the freedom. And it's um, and this is what we'll be discussing in the rehearsals, mm. I believe. But yeah. um, it's it's yes, it's very tricky, especially. You have to judge the acoustics in the hall. So many different aspects, and in when when you're performing, you have to take into account. And <clears throat> of course, as the piano, uh, a piano is a complete different instrument from a woodwind yeah. um, clarinet or flute, which which can sing so beautifully. And so can the piano. However, we can't sus- can't sustain yeah. no long notes for very long. So there are. <laughs> all sorts of yeah. Well, that, that's what strikes me about that that second movement in particular. Rachmaninoff really puts it up to the piano. He says, "Let's have a lovely, you know, fluid flute line and a lovely fluid clarinet line." Now, Mister Piano or Ms. Piano Player, now you give us your version of those wonderful <laughs> tunes that we've just heard. He really lays it out. He he sets a, a quite a task for you in that respect. Yes, exactly. But um, I mean, the music is so poignant, and yeah. it really speaks for itself. And um, you've got to just play it and enjoy it, really. 
I did you at what point <laughs> the little toy piano that you got when you were five years old? You didn't try to play Rachmaninoff on that. Tell me the story <laughs> of that toy piano, which I think is absolutely gorgeous. Which is what set you off on this route in the first place. Yes, I well, it's. I think I wanted to be a pianist probably ever since. Ever since then, hmm. um, I picked out a toy piano for my for my birthday I think my dad told me to pick any toy and and I picked up a toy piano and how small how small was this little piano that you picked up at the age of five Ali um I believe it was two octaves so but you could (laughs) yeah and 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 like how quickly what was it about the piano that clearly it was a kind of a love at first sight um and and that continued on to love at first sound I'm presuming as well what was it about the piano that struck you or that caught your musical imagination do you think well I must say I can't remember from the age of five uh however I I think I was probably very fascinated by the whole um action of pressing the buttons um then my dad told me why why don't we find a teacher for you Nick and she can teach you piano and we found a lovely teacher to come home and who whom I remember um to this day who she was very lovely and um she told us to go to music school and um and that's where the journey really began yeah. and I I'd sort of wanted to be a pianist and uh, a performer and and I listened to a bunch of music and and you came from it. There was not a musical background in your family. This came out of not nowhere. Not at all. Not at all. Yes, I'm an only child, and my parents are not musicians. And it's it's just by chance, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen. Every best wish. I'm looking forward to to hearing your Irish debut. And thanks so much for being so with us on the program this evening, Alim. Thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank That's you. Alim Besambayev, uh, who will be playing Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto on the 6th of March with the RTE Concert Orchestra. I've whetted your appetite, I think, for the second movement. Here's how it all ends. Final movement there of uh, Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. Three, um, and that is the piece that uh, Alex, uh, Alim, uh, Alim Basimbayev would be playing with the RT Concert. So thanks, major thanks to uh, John Wilson and the London Sinfonia for uh, having allowing us to the Sinfonia of London rather for allowing us to play that um, performance from the. Uh, from the proms BBC proms of 2023 OK let me give you the answer to tonight's competition yes Strauss' Landmark Opera is based on a play by which Irish playwright 
Oscar Wilde was of course the answer we were looking for and winning that wonderful prize to Here's Janine Campbell-Wallace in the National uh, Opera House in Wexford to stay in the Crown Quarter in Wexford and to have her dinner her concert supper at Jasper's Restaurant on Sunday the 3rd of March is Sarah Jennings congratulations to you Sarah and that is our lot for this Monday evening Niall Fitzmaurice was the researcher Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator James Feeney was on sound this evening tonight's programme produced by Reg Luby talk to you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on Otistish Tuesday night, is it yet? Um, I will talk to you once again tomorrow night here on RTE Radio 1 at 7 o'clock. John Creedon will be with you after the news.